You're listening to Nearly Numinous, a podcast all about the religious side of life. Every week we chat about different religions, spiritualities, and other beliefs. We do roundtable discussions, deep dives into histories and religious studies theories, and interview different religious leaders or practitioners. For full transcripts and more information on each episode, you can find us at nearlynuminous.ca. Hello and welcome to the Nearly Numinous podcast. Today we will be continuing our discussion on the Enneagram, which listeners will remember we also discussed in an episode before Christmas. With us today we have Steve Van Cleek, who has a coaching practice in the Enneagram and he also teaches an intro to the Enneagram class. So Steve, I was wondering, could you give us a little bit of a background on your coaching practice and what what you sort of do with that? So I've been, I was introduced to the Enneagram about seven years ago. Uh, and it was just kind of background noise for a little while, for about a year and a half, two years. And then, like happens a lot of the times when we decide it's time to get more introspective, um, disaster struck in the form of um, of some, my marriage hit a really rough spot that I I could recognize a lot of it was my own lack of awareness, lack of ability to be present in my propensity to withdraw um, feeling like I don't have enough energy to distribute out. So I pumped a lot of energy in at work and then I had very little energy to dispense. Or I felt like I had very little energy to dispense with two young children, my two oldest boys and for my wife, which isn't a great way to run a relationship. And as that kind of bubbled to a head and I noticed it in the background and tried to ignore it and my wife would bring it up further and further and further, I couldn't ignore it anymore. And I had very little tools to deal with it. And so around the same time as that came to a head, we started uh, counseling, marriage counseling to try to work this out. Um, I came across uh, mindfulness. It wasn't really mindfulness at the time. It was really just sitting meditation. So I came across sitting meditation at the same time as I discovered the Enneagram. And I'm a very obvious, I have the, like a very obvious compulsion, a very uh, obvious kind of egoic formation as the type five on the Enneagram, which laid out my whole pattern, the whole pattern that had led to right where I was at in my marriage. And even before that, like all as a child and the why I was labeled as shy and standoffish and cold sometimes. And it blew my mind that there was a model that could that could hold all of this and also show me how I moved. Show me how I've moved into unhealth. And show, this is specifically Riso and Hudson's model. They had the levels of health that they've developed. And um, I was I was blown away by that. So I, I played with that and my meditative practice in tandem for the next probably three years or so and watched myself move through this pattern through withdrawing through engaging and repairing my relationship my relationship with myself in a lot of regards and realizing the illusion of my my egoic pattern the fact that I have a lot more energy than I like to tell myself that I have was really important and through paying attention and using the Enneagram as kind of a guidance system of what to pay attention to I was able to move into places like a more full expression I would say of, of who I am I took all that information. We moved down here to where I live now in Florida and got involved in a church. And I dabbled and I talked about this tool a lot. And my small group really wanted me to teach it. They came to me and said, well, you just teach us this thing because it sounds really interesting. And so I had them take the Ready, which is the EnneagramInstitute.com's website, um, which is where I recommend people start if they want to start at all with it. And they just want a quick way of kind of triangulating some some form of their kind of egoic pattern 
it's the only, there's one other test I just recently found out actually has some psychometric validity, but there's a billion little 30 question questionnaires that can be really confusing for people. And we can talk about that more later if you want to. I I recommended my small group start there. And then I just walked them through material for like, it was like six weeks or so. And the feedback was incredible. There, people were talking about real um, debates that should have happened, fights that should have happened that were deferred for various reasons. People that were just missing each other, and there's aspects of the other person they thought they were doing just to frustrate the other, but it turns out they had a completely different lens on reality from you know their partner. And um, that feedback kind of turned into me being requested to teach a class at the church on it. So I've been doing that. This is the, would be my fourth year, but I haven't because of COVID. I didn't really want to do the Zoom thing. I like think there's something special about being in proximity, especially when you're talking about pretty vulnerable stuff. There's something about the, the safety of proximity, I, I think, instead of being in separate spaces, you know, like, can I share, should I share, and, you know, distanced from each other. Um, what I found from my classes was that um, I, I, I started using uh, Suzanne Stubiel and Ian Morgan Cron's book called The Road Back to You, which is a Christian book on the Enneagram. It's a pretty good intro as intro to the Enneagram goes. And in it, they have this concept they call the snap, which is a, just a mindfulness. It's if you're familiar with stop, it's another mindfulness kind of technique. It's stop, notice, ask, and pivot, right? It's just little moments you're supposed to take to take inventory somatically, take inventory emotionally, right? Uh, cognitively, where your thoughts running off to. Um, and then opt out of patterns that aren't working for you that you're noticing. Well, as I had people incorporate this homework into my class, I realized how bad we just are. I think it's a, a Western American thing, probably. Um, I don't think all cultures are this bad at being mindful, but we are just so bad at just being quiet and taking those times. And the moment it came to a head was when I, we were going around the room, it was about 12 people in the room. And we were talking about a moment that we had journaled about doing, taking these moments and noticing our specific kind of egoic pattern. And one, a, a, a specific energetic type that has a hard time sitting still said, oh yeah, I did that while I went on my run. I did that stop thing when I went on my run. And I thought, oh man, we really are missing this big time. And that's when I got really serious about finding a way to help people kind of quickly and grounded in a, in a logic and rationality that people, every person could grasp, um, figure out tools by which to get still and see the instant value and see the science behind it. And so MBSR is, is that package for me. Um, it's an eight-week course. The formal MBSR training is an eight-week course that runs you through all these different types of mindfulness trainings. You do a different exercise every single week. And so that's my coaching practice. I've kind of learned and grown as I've done this myself and taught it in classes. My coaching practice now is we take the Enneagram as a guidance system and we pair up my mindfulness kind of homework with it. And as you learn to do sitting meditation, you learn to do body scan, there's certain yogic kind of body awareness motions that you do. Um, you start to kind of figure out, oh, this works for me. This helps me pay better attention to these specific things that the tool is calling out. And so that's kind of the whole narrative, the whole story of, of where I came from and then how I landed with, with what I'm doing now. So you said that you tend to look at the Enneagram with a Christian lens. Um, and yeah, this, this use of the Enneagram in like Christian circles seems to be quite, quite a common thing that I'm hearing um, for Christian circles. And I was just wondering, what are your insights and why this is so popular? I think there's a couple different reasons. I think I think a big one is that modern American Christianity is missing a psychological component as a whole. 
I think it's something that has existed historically in Christianity. Um, things like spiritual direction that some schools and some denominations hold to still, and a lot don't. Like I never grew up in a tradition that had spiritual direction as a regular thing that I did or a contemplative prayer practice, right? And I, honestly, until probably my late 20s, early 30s, I didn't know there were Christians that did those things. It just wasn't the vein of Christianity that I was raised in. And I think that's pretty widespread. And so this capacity that some veins of Christianity may have baked into their spirituality of paying attention, uh, a lot of us don't have that. And I think there's an instant attraction to growing this ability to pay attention and all the benefits that come with paying attention to what's going on. So I think that's one layer of it. I think another layer of it for me personally is we've seen so much, we've seen a lot of oppression come out of the church and like take your pick of the denomination or the vein of the church where there's pain and suffering has been generated and created because of the church itself. And I think that issue is because we have a bad psychology. I think there is a, I think there's a lot of spiritual bypassing going on where we call in some sort of spiritual explanation for why things are falling apart, but don't do the practical thing of, well, what are we missing in the way we're training or the way we're bringing people into the clergy or you're right. Like how are, how is the mental capacity? What are the thought processes of these people? Um, you know, I've worked at jobs that I had to do a, like a psychological test before I got hired and you know, and that wasn't near as important as a job that somebody in you know, a position of power like a clergy would have. So, um, and I think we're missing that maybe in the leadership levels, but I think we're missing that just generally. There's like a hunger for that and a noticing that we aren't really good at paying attention to what's going on and that leads to suffering and pain. And there's kind of an innate understanding of that. And so people like me see that and we want to help and inject it. And there's leaders that notice it and say, hey, will you come and help? Will you teach us? Will you help people understand and see this a little bit better? So that's two levels. And I think another is, well, maybe those are good. There, there's, a, there's a level that I see in particular, and one of the things from a Christian lens, the reasons from a Christian lens, I think this is really critical, is that I think when Jesus is talking about the need to die to self, like you die to yourself, you take up your cross, you follow me. I think if we don't know what the self is, how could we ever even start that process? And I think we are in a place right now spiritually where we don't even really understand the complex layers that make up what we are. And tools like the Enneagram at least help do some stratification and showing that you're a thing that's in motion. You're not one thing all the time, right? You're a, you're a complex kind of multi-layered thing in flux and in motion. And in noticing that and paying attention to that, you can opt into different patterns and out of different patterns, right? So we have, there's this, uh, there's opportunity for, for change in motion. And um, I also see Jesus kind of confounding people in his ministry that have very specific egoic patterns. So you have somebody like Nicodemus, who's very high headed. And that whole conversation goes down. Like you have to become, you gotta, and you gotta be reborn. And his first question is, well, how do I get back into my mom's womb? Right. And Jesus is calling him out of his egoic pattern, right? This like high headedness and calling him into this other place, this like deeper, like spiritual understanding of things. And when the rich young ruler comes forward, his whole thing is different. His isn't high headed, it's image consciousness, right? It's, I have all this stuff. I've done everything perfectly. Now, what do I do? And his answer for the kingdom was go sell all your stuff, give all your money to the poor and then come follow me. 
right? So there's a lot of confounding of the self that Jesus is doing. But if you're not paying attention to the fact there's different types of egoic expressions, you miss some of the nuance in there. And I think we're called to it too. I don't think those calls stay in the in, on those pages. I think the call is perpetual, that we're called to not to be able to see what we have going on, what the barrier is for us, and to be able to die to it. And I think that is the process of growth in a sense, so the, the process of opting into patterns that serve us better, like I kind of out, outlined earlier in my own journey. So I don't know if that got to all your question, but that's some of it. Yeah, absolutely. Thank you. Um, I had a question um, more along the lines of if what, in your opinion, are links that the Enneagram itself has with Christian theology? I don't know outside of under, I think I'll say this, it isn't like a specific theological position, but how we develop theology is impacted by how our personality forms. We have something like 30,000 different denominations of Christianity. And there's a reason for that. And I suspect it comes from a psychological division around what the emphasis should be, where, where, what parts of this text should be emphasized and de-emphasized. What, some of them are completely different approaches to how the text should be read entirely. You've got literalism, right? And you've got sort of a more Jewish midrash that's even kind of emerging in Christianity a little bit more. Rob Bell loves a good midrash if you listen to any of his stuff or read any of his books. Um, and and this, they're very different approaches to the exact same text. And the reason for that is that we have different lenses for how we view reality, for how we understand um, even this kind of ancient tradition and what it means for us now. And so if you can't, if you don't understand that you have a unique lens and that person over there has a different lens, then you're going to be left kind of in this state of tension where Sometimes you have to conquer them. Sometimes you're going to con constant, uh, a constant state of doubt about whether you're right or they're right. Um, and I think the first step theologically is understanding there's a foundation by which your theology inter that interacts with your theology and kind of selects the theology and working from that kind of foundational level. I think that's where you start deconstructing in some cases, right? It's like, well, wait, was this me? Was this handed to me? Did I latch onto this because an authority figure I trusted gave this to me? Am I attaching to this because it's a theology that fits better cognitively or fits better emotionally with who I am, right? So that's kind of more of like a meta answer than any particular theology, but I think it's foundational to understand you are looking at the world from a unique perspective and the Enneagram helps call that out. I really appreciate the uh, like what what you said about how different denominations have different lenses, but then that also applies on an individual level. How like we as individuals see things differently, and I I don't know. I just find it very interesting how those two things kind of overlap. And yeah, yeah, no, I absolutely. I mean, we make up the denominations, right? <laughs> yeah. I'm a little curious if uh, you have a background in in psychology or theology prior to kind of coming to the Enneagram. I actually, I was like eight credits shy of my religious studies degree. <clears throat> I was a double major in technology and, and religious studies. And I was so sick of school. I just bailed. I was like, I'm not doing this double major thing. I'm out. Um, so I've, yeah, I've done a lot. Uh, took a ton of seminary classes. I took Greek one, ancient Near Eastern history, um, a bunch of different genre classes with some really, actually really stellar props from my little Christian school that I went to that aren't there anymore. They're adjuncts at the time. Now they have better positions other places. But um, so yeah, a very real extensive theology background. Um, 
psychologically, it's really been more of a hobby as far as theories of personality go. And it's all been because I've been trying to sort myself out for a really long time. So all the way back to like MBTI, I've done DISC, I've done strength, find, strength finders. And um, it was kind of in all of the fact that I have that backdrop already. And then the Enneagram still stood out in such a prominent way. It was the first one that I didn't instantly jump into the psychometric validation, right? Like, well, is this real at all? Because it hit, it landed so true to me that I was like, what? This is, it actually is startling to people. The first reaction a lot of people have when I introduce them to it is that they're startled that these words are written down someplace because it maps them so accurately. Um, I don't think that means we, we shouldn't have a good psycho, good clinical data underneath it, right? That's working. I think it's coming, by the way. I actually think it's in the works right now. I sent you some of that, um, by the way. I don't know if you guys had a chance to look over that, but. Yeah, I had a look at it earlier and it looks like it looks really interesting and I'm definitely going to be looking into it more and I'm not surprised that there sounds like there's going to be some more studies done on the psychometric validation of the Enneagram. Yeah, I think, uh, you know, what, what so often happens with these things is it takes money to do studies. And if there isn't a big push, well, we're not going to do anything unless you can prove it. Because people, you know, it's not like they have a governing body they have to appeal to and meet some sort of criteria. People are doing it. They're getting accredited in different Enneagram, you know, institutes, coaching styles are getting taught from different schools. And people know it works. And so no one's really asking for the clinical data. But there's people like, I don't know if you looked at the study, Rachel, from Anna, I think Anna Sutton was her name. She's a PhD. Hers is really good. If you're just going to look at one and even for your listeners, if you're interested in this, it's called, um, but is it real? A review of research on the Enneagram. It was from uh, 2012. And that's a good one because it kind of collects a bunch of different ones in it because you kind of grabs a bunch of different studies done. But for me, the most, the most interesting one, if you're into the the validity of it is the mapping to the big five, which is probably, I don't know. I, th I think, I don't know a few of you are, work on your PhDs in psychology, right? Is that accurate? No. Um, both Rachel uh, and I looked at psychology a fair bit in our undergrad, okay. but yeah, we're, we're not qualified as, <laughs> as PhDs. I thought there was a background. There's, there's some sort of background in psychology or counseling or something. Yeah. Is that true or no? Yeah. I do have an undergraduate degree okay, in cool. psychology. Cool. Yeah. Oh, yeah, yeah. Yeah. So the big five is typically considered the most valid personality you know, typing system, but it's, um, it's like the more valid it is, the less useful it kind of is to apply. Cause like, you can figure out how neurotic or not you are, but it's like, well, what do I do with this information? And the Enneagram is more. That's a very good point. Yeah. And, um, I, I saw some, um, I've seen some articles on the Enneagram, like, uh, it's because it's so applicable and rings so true with so many people that means it's kind of hard to test its psychometric validity just because it's kind of hard to match those two up. I don't know if that makes yeah. sense. Yeah. And well, there's just a thousand, there's a thousand challenges to doing to, I think to accurate all of these, all of these models I just listed off MBTI, DISC, the Enneagram, they're all just trying to model some, some data of reality, right? And the ones that we can apply and work probably are not modeling certain aspects of reality accurately one-to-one -one because we can apply it and we see the thing that it documents it's going to happen, right? But inside of that, there's all this dynamic stuff internally happening. Like what? how do you map all of the things that I did to see this thing, work on paying attention to it, 
right? And I have a unique environment. I have a unique physiology. I have a unique mental health construct. And then this, and then I can say this worked for me. I don't know how you'd ever actually model that in a clinical setting because there's so much dynamism in that flow. I don't know if that's what you're saying, Rachel, but it's, um, it's yeah. yeah, it's not easy to do any of this work. The trying to map personality is, is complicated. Um, but I don't, again, I, get, I encounter plenty of people there. I just want to say it's pseudoscience and toss it out. And um, occasionally, one of which, well, it was sort of the stance of my brother who might listen to this. And uh, he really was not a fan and I just dropped it. And I think that's an important piece to mention. If people are interested in the Enneagram, I tell people this all the time that I teach. We aren't recruiting people for the church of the Enneagram here. That's fine if they're not into it. You know, um, I think I, I, when we did our, our off air setup, um, this concept of any annoyance, right? Where it's just like nonstop, all they can do is talk about Enneagram about people and it just turns people off like crazy. And uh, my brother, Tim was kind of, I don't think I was annoying him with it. I just kept little, he would say little things and I'd say, you know, I think this would be useful to help you understand that a little bit better. And he'd be like, I'm not in a box. That's not going to work for me. It, it was literally like two years later, he called me and said, so I took this thing. This is crazy. <laughs> you know, he's like, how is this true? How is this real? And so, and now he's, he actually called yesterday. He left me a voice memo and said, I think I'm like an Enneagram fiend now. And I don't know how this happened. <laughs> and so again, my advice <laughs> is don't annoy people with it. It's kind of one of those things. It's sort of like trying to tell someone they should go to counseling or do any kind of inner work. Like, would you really badger someone like, Hey, like you should go and see a professional. You really should see a professional about that. Eventually, if they don't want to do it, they're just going to cut you out and be annoyed with you. Right. Um, so it's important to know when just to drop it and let it be for you. That's words of wisdom to anybody out there who's in that stage of wanting to shout it from the rooftops. It can be just for you. That's good enough. That's very true. I remember uh, this very specific situation where uh, I was kind of stuck at a table with people who were just talking and talking mm -hmm. and talking about the Enneagram and they were using all the lingo and stuff. And I didn't really know much about the Enneagram at this point. And so I was just really really annoyed because it was an exclusive conversation yeah. I was like there was no way out of it and so you're right like I did get very annoyed and then I didn't look up the Enneagram for a while after that because I was so annoyed and so then any use it could have had for me at that point like was just was just void because I was so annoyed with it and then now um I do quite appreciate the Enneagram, but it took a it took a while for me to get over that initial annoyance. Yeah. It's like, why would you want to join that group? <laughs> yeah, the yeah. language is very exclusionary because you're talking in numbers, right? It's like, yeah. oh, that's very four of you. That's very eight of you. And oh. like, you have no basis for what that means unless you know the Enneagram. Even then you don't. Like another soapbox. I've been doing this for a while now and I've read... Even people who are into the Enneagram probably haven't read as many books as I have or done online courses like I have. And that's not like, I'm not being braggadocious. It's actually part of my ego fixation. I go bonkers with data when I get obsessed with something. And I'm bad at typing people because there's so much nuance in this whole thing. Why it's useful is it starts at motivations and all you're seeing is behaviors. You can have the same behavior from a lot of different motivations. It's actually one of the things that's useful about the Enneagram, if you actually dig into it, that you realize, oh, this is a lot more nuanced than I thought it was. And people who just have been on Instagram and seen a couple memes, and now that all of a sudden they're going to start telling people. And, and the thing that I hate, Steph, is that they use that as a derogatory thing. It's so almost always a uh, some sort of negative little like jab, as if having a certain personality is a negative thing. 
I hate it. It drives me crazy. Yeah, I think we we talked about that a lot in our last episode, that kind of idea that these these personality tests, whether it's the Enneagram or anything else, can oftentimes, if you don't know a lot about it, it can oftentimes put you in a box. So yeah. I was complaining about the fact, like, I'm a four, and a fours are highly emotional. So then does that mean that everybody that finds out that I'm a four thinks that I'm just this neurotic emotional mess, right? Yeah. Yeah, that's a good point. And there's a lot of misunderstanding as well about what it means to be an emotional person, right? And a lot of people don't understand. It doesn't mean you're going to burst out into tears or into rage at any given moment. As a matter of fact, you can be very plain-faced, very straightforward, and have a lot of emotion under the hood happening. And yeah, I I think the the general issue with it is people that is just the stereotypical kind of surface level understanding, not just of the concepts, but about what words like emotional mean, right? Or um, what's a good one? Like for me, like my withdrawal, right? Just because I'm withdrawing, sometimes it's a sign that I need to be engaging and I'm opting out of engaging where the healthier thing to do would be to stick it out and engage. Sometimes I need to actually recoup some energy because that's just how I operate, right? I'm in this kind of extroverted, way of operating in the world, right? And so if somebody says, oh, fives withdraw, and that's kind of their their thing that they need to watch out for, and they're watching me move, if they don't understand the motivation underneath that action, and they come at me and say, hey, you really should be engaging right now and not withdrawing. It's like, you don't actually understand how much more nuance there is to what you're talking about. And again, it leads to that same kind of annoying type of a person that understands just enough on the surface to use the lingo and to kind of be obnoxious. Um, but not enough to know that this is for you in the first place. If anybody listening to this takes anything, it's for you. It's not for, it's not for the parlor trick as tempting as that is to type people. And if you want to type celebrities, I guess go for it. But if you're doing that instead of applying it to yourself, then there's just missing a lot. You're missing a lot of value in it. Don't be annoying. (laughs) Hey, Rachel, you're a five too. Do you have any questions that you would like to ask from a mutual five experience (laughs) yeah I was just listening to you talk earlier about um like how people viewed you as shy or like cold sometimes um and you like tending to withdraw or being worried about not having enough energy to give people when really you should be telling yourself like you do have enough energy to give people like I really resonate with that so like that's just another thing about the Enneagram like it connects with you so so completely like and it connects you with other people that is found so that's so yeah. cool to, to hear yeah that's that's actually one of the really beautiful things that happens in my classes and when I kind of got hooked on teaching it as like just like an intro class as much as it can be difficult because that means I'm setting up a bunch of these people that want to go around and preach it even though I tell them after every class for six weeks please don't do this it always happens I hear it happening in the class I have to call people out on it it's in there's good hearted, but it's like, come on, you know, it's, it's just not what it's for. But what the beautiful thing that comes out of it is people sitting around that table that all kind of have emerged as different types of personalities. Most of them realize they're not alone. There's other people that experience it, something like they do some around some kind of core set of it, there's nuance to it, but around the same core set of kind of experience. I've had people tell me that they were terrified of stepping into the class, their wife towed them in. It's almost always men too. It seems like they're terrified to come in. Women come all the time. I have way more women in my classes than men. And uh, the, the men show up and like, I was so terrified of being exposed. And then I realized the reason I feel so poorly about myself is an expression of this 
personality that has emerged and it maps it. It talks about it right here. It's showing it to me. And so they already are catching some of that negative self-talk or some of that like self like that self-degradation they just carry with themselves and realizing, oh, there's a whole subset of people that experience life this way. And there's something about, I never didn't anticipate that being such a cool part of it, but there's a sense of I'm not alone in my unique experience and all of our unique experiences is there's suffering incorporated in it. Something about being conscious means that we suffer. It's just, there can be different lenses that lend to different kinds of suffering. And to know you're not alone is a huge comfort to lots of people. And I love that about doing my class and seeing light bulbs go off with people. It's cool. I'd be really interested to hear more about um, what you think about the connections between the Enneagram and mindfulness and meditation. Because um, as someone who has both a personal and academic background in mindfulness and meditation um, and Buddhism, like I noticed you were just talking about like to sort of like be conscious is suffering. That's very Buddhist. I would love to hear more about what you think about that connection? Well, my running theory, which is why I'm pairing my mindfulness-based stress reduction stuff up with this, is that the Enneagram has good information. But if you don't have the conscious awareness to pay attention and apply it, I don't know that it's doing a whole lot of good for you. And again, I think that kind of highlighted when I paired the that snap process up, or really Susan Stubiel did it. I just emphasized it in those classes that I did after my first class that people didn't even know how to do the first part and doing and doing the different parts of becoming mindful, even like stopping, being able to feel your body, right? You'd be able to even go to your breath, being able to pay attention to the thoughts that are arising and the emotions that are arising. All of that's learned stuff. I just, I started at the same time I started the Enneagram and I didn't realize I was doing both at the same time. And so when I, once I realized that if you don't have the capacity to pay attention, then you can't actually take the Enneagram in and carry the information with you and notice a great example for me is when I withdraw. I, when I was in my late twenties, I withdrew, drew into my basement when we lived up in the Midwest and I'd play video games or watch Netflix down in my office and like, just chill away from everybody. That was a really, once I realized I was withdrawing, it was so obvious. I'm in a different space in the house. I mean, like for hours, sometimes until, until the kids went to bed. So home from work down there. And I was like, wow, that's horrible. I got this wider angle lens and it was so obvious I was withdrawing. Now I withdraw into my phone and it's, it's, it's subtle because I'm still sitting near people. The proximity thing has disappeared. But if I'm not paying attention and realizing that I'm escaping, my consciousness, my awareness is escaping into this other space, then I'm not going to realize that I'm still slipping into my withdrawal mode. It's just changing form, right? The reason I can pay attention to that is because I've spent the last five years trying to pay attention to myself through you know, different types of practices. And so I think the Enneagram is great. I think if you're not able to pay attention to the cool stuff that it shows you, then I don't know. I think it just turned you into, into a, a meme or whatever, a meme maker on Instagram or something. Um, because I just think you don't have the capacity to apply it. So you use the Enneagram um, as a part of like spiritual direction in, in the Christian church. And I was just wondering, is there a difference between psychological growth and, and spiritual growth in your opinion? I think kind of deferring to earlier when I was talking about the psychological underpinnings of how we even approach your holy text or your theological understanding that they are 
I would say they're inextricably linked. Your psychology and your spirituality both inform each other. It's like a, I think it's a feedback loop. And I don't think you can correct one or move one without the other, right? Maybe they're, maybe they're two sides of the same coin, something along those lines. So if you don't have the, the understanding of your own psychology, that you have a psychology for the first place, which is surprising to some people, you have a specific lens that you view the world through, then you won't understand why your spiritual path was selected in the first place. Because there's kind of this mode, the Enneagram talks about this, where we're asleep, where we don't even really realize that there's a pattern that's emerged, right? We've, we've, we have these formative years as children when our personality is kind of firmed up. And then there's a couple more years somewhere in there where there's more details fleshed out, maybe through your 20s, right? Um, and we don't even really realize that we're making decisions based on the output of that process because a personality has emerged based on, you know, some mixture of nature and nurture, right? And I think if you don't wake up to that, then you don't realize you've selected things like even like your political party, your spiritual path, your religious stuff, all of this, right? Your friends, your career, all of these things, right? Are outputs of that function. And so if you don't have that foundation, you can't even begin to really understand why you made certain decisions. And then as you can opt into things the way that you actually want to, not in this kind of a sleep pattern that you've been in, I think that's where the real magic actually happens. And then your spirituality can absolutely inform your psychology, right? Like learning, and I I think it it should, I think that's kind of part of the, I think a good spiritual practice does impact the way we think about the world, the way we think about ourselves, right? So it's like, maybe there's a kickoff with a psychological understanding as a formation, and then there's a more, you're actually starting to select your spiritual path instead of just waking up into it. That makes sense. There's a lot of books I've come across and other resources that, that very distinctly tie the Enneagram with spiritual development specifically. Um, so we're seeing this kind of trend beyond like your work that you do, but it also seems to be kind of pervasive. And I'm wondering if there's any resources that you've come across that you've really appreciated and if there's other uh, links between Christianity and the Enneagram that you found from other people that have kind of been guiding to you. I mean, the first one, the first two that come to mind are, I've mentioned already here, The Road Back to You is a really good intro from a Christian perspective. Um, Suzanne Stubiel has a really awesome organization, an Enneagram organization that she runs out of Texas. Ian Morgan Cron is a, was a pastor. I think he's a Lutheran, Lutheran pastor for a long time. He's not anymore. I think he exclusively does Enneagram work now. So there, that book is really good. It's a great intro. And I actually use that with the study guide. The study guide has a lot of the snap, the mindfulness stuff built into it. And I built, I kind of have my own curriculum that I paired up with that to teach my classes at my church. They have a second book called The Paths Between Us, which is about relationships, interconnection with the Enneagram backdrop, which is really good. I haven't taught that yet. I think I might do like a more advanced class at some point. I have enough people that have taken it now that maybe I can put 12 people together across three or four years of classes. Chris Hewitt's book is good. He has a lot of my hit this. The last half of his book is around mindful application. So it really is a good book from a Christian perspective. 
Richard Rohr has a book that's a little bit older, but it is a sort of a diving into the Enneagram as a as actually being sourced from the Christian mystics. I believe it's called the Enneagram, a Christian perspective or something along those lines. I think it was maybe written in the 80s. There was a really big surge of popularity in the 80s. And then it kind of died down again until fairly recently, like the last five years or so, I'd say. And that is him saying that the desert father and mothers, the original contemplative mystic Christians, actually, this was one, this was a concept that they developed. And it points to like the, the seven deadly sins maps them plus two. There's always these little modifications where you're like, oh, is it really that then? <laughs> but there is some in, there is some interesting correlations, right, that are made that kind of talk about the system origins maybe having been from the from an actual Christian origin initially, or early on the Christians found it and modified it and adapted it. But that's a whole nother debate. The actual origins of the Enneagram it could be like its own podcast. And there's so many weird twists and turns with that. So yeah, I think those are a couple of good resources. You mentioned a little bit about the, the or, origins of the Enneagram. And I was wondering, um, I know that some, like some more con- conservative Christians have a bit of a problem with having with the Enneagram and it's kind of more esoteric beginnings. And I was wondering if you've experienced that at all in your practice. I haven't had anybody um, get, get concerned around that. I don't, and I'm kind of anticipating that somebody will at some point do, you know, dig into it and really want to know where it actually came from. The truth is it's gone through a lot of iterations and it depends who you ask around how old it actually is and where it actually came from. There are, as far back as we know, it was Gurdjieff, right? Which is like a turn of the century, you know, dude, um, died, I don't know, like 1915 or something like that, I think. And he was the first one that actually had the symbol, but didn't use it as a map of personality. It was a different type of thing. Um, and where he got it, even at, from up to that far is unclear. Um, these are like little pockets of secret schools, right? So there's only a select few people that got to go in and learn any of this stuff obviously way pre-internet. So and so it wasn't supposed to go far and wide. That was the whole point of it. And I think just because something is esoteric doesn't make it, it doesn't make it inherently evil or bad, right? As far as like being secret, being information that everyone doesn't have access to necessarily. And I think you could argue it's not anymore because lots of people have access to it, right? For better or for worse. <laughs> and uh, so, yeah, all those annoying Enneagramites are starting to wonder if maybe it should have stayed a secret for a little while longer. <laughs> Um, Especially all the Instagram accounts. I was getting a good laugh at like all of the Instagram accounts dedicated solely to the Enneagram. I think so. Yeah. Claudio Naranjo is probably rolling in his grave. Um, so yeah, there's, there's, so there's Gurdjieff and then there's the schools that came after Gurdjieff and there's all these little tweaks and modifications that were made. And so was it Oscar Achazo? Was it Claudio Naranjo? Was it, um, you know, was it there's a John C. Lilly was another one that came out of uh, Oscar Achazo's school. There was a group that popped up in Berkeley and then it, it kind of started the secret started like slipping out, I think around like 1950, 60 ish, somewhere in there. So I get the con- I get the concern a little bit, I guess. I'm I'm not I'm not that concerned. I, so from a Christian perspective, all truth is God's truth. So if like my my understanding of God is just like ground of being, right? Like everything's held together for, through, by, right? So if this thing plays and it works and it's mapping reality, then it's mapping a piece of the divine or of the divine's creation. So I'm, I'm not really spooked by that. I know there are Christian veins that are um, much jumpier <laughs> around information like this. And um, they, they anticipate sort of like demonic activity around 
every corner and under rocks. And I don't mean that to disparage them, but it's not how I operate. I don't see that coming out of my tradition as something to hold on to. I don't see it coming out of the text as something that I should be obsessed about. I think if people are understanding themselves better, understanding the world better, and moving into these more full expressions of who they can be because of what they're learning, then this is a good thing. And I, I just don't spend a whole lot of time. As soon as it starts doing bad things for people, I'll, re, I'll you know, I'll rethink the whole thing. But so far, it's, it's all the fruit's been good. So I'm gonna keep doing that. Yeah, the only bad thing is the excessive Instagram accounts. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, yeah, that's true. That's the Could only bad. Fruit. And I'll be fine for that bad fruit to wither up and go away. I sound like such a miser. People are going to listen to this and they're like, wow, this guy's a jerk. Why would I ever want to work with this guy? Oh, I don't actually hate the Instagram accounts or the memes. Oh, it's just, just easy to make fun of. <laughs> I just want, I just want, I would like equal amount of time spent on like the deeper work, the deeper. Into, I wish there were more groups talking about, hey, today I noticed this thing. Today I did my body scan meditation and it's like actually working. I've been doing this for last week. I'm paying attention better. I'm noticing I'm withdrawing more in these spaces and like having those, I wish those were the conversations boiling to the top and not the silly stereotypes and memes. We can do both, but I just equal time. That's what I'd like to see. I'm trying to contribute to equal time. We'll see if it works. Strange thing I've noticed just while we're on the topic of Instagram, something mm -hmm. I've noticed, and I don't know if this is just me, but all of the Instagram influencers that I follow are all type fours. And I don't know if that's because like I identify more with them because that's what I'm like, or if it's because people who are type fours are more likely to get super instant into Instagram. That was just a thing it's I noticed. A good question. Here's the other thing. Um, there's a really popular free test online. I think overtypes people as fours. Yeah. I I, we didn't really talk about this. If you guys want to go into good test, bad test, I think there was a question on psychometric validity. So there are tests that are Enneagram tests that have actually passed psychometric rigor, meaning if you take them enough times, you're actually going to come back around the same scores, right? Um, the Ready 2.0, which is from the Enneagram Institute, it's Riso and Hudson's test that they've made, is one of them. I just learned about another I know very little about, but it's called the IE9, and it looks really interesting. The Ready has, I, there's a certain score they have to pass. I think it has to be 70%, uh, like the recurrence rate has to be 70%. So if you don't get the results back like two thirds of the time, the same results, then it's probably not, something's designed poorly with it, right? And the distribution, there's a certain type of distribution that you should be getting consistently as well across the different outcomes. Um, the IE9 looked better from the what I was looking at their report. It actually looked like it was more accurate than the Ready. It looked like it was more expensive too. So I guess probably the research that goes into building those accurately is probably kicks back out. But if you don't take those and you almost always have to pay for them because they spend research money to build those, then you. I'm not saying you can't get typed properly, but the the ability to get mistyped goes up significantly, especially if you have a really strong wing or you've lived in stress a lot because that different energies show up when you're in stress more often. Some people have really strong wings and they can't tell if their wings are core or their core is their wing. And then what happens is you go take the other one and you go take the other one and they're all these free tests that you keep taking that have no real validity to them. And you're six tests deep and you're like, well, this says I'm a nine and this says I'm a six and this says I'm, you know, and you're actually more confused having gone down that path and not less. And I'll tell you this from, from teaching classes now for uh, four years and now having about a, a solid year of coaching under my belt. 
I've never had anyone come to me and say, I was confused, but I took my eighth online free test and now I got my clarity. It's never, ever happened. So if you're in that boat, don't feel bad. Like a lot of people fall in that position, but this is why coaching exists and why there are good, they're pretty well-designed tests that I use the ready with my clients. And it gives us at least a ballpark place to start talking through if they're not clear. And in about four sessions, usually we can lock it into where they're like minds blown, like with across their core type, their wing and the instinctual variant, which is a really critical point as well. So, and usually I can do it. I just had a session with a, with a woman from uh, Portugal, I think it was. And um, it was like 45 minutes and she already done a lot of work. So it wasn't that complicated. It was like, am I this or am I this? And we just talked through it. And then I read her. My favorite book is that I, my reference manual is Riso and Hudson have this book called Personality Types. And it's got great defi- definitions about page and a half write-ups of the type with the wing. So when the core type is like kind of it, but there's nuance to it, that's not there that's not you the wing incorporation usually provides a ton of clarity and the write-ups are really comprehensive it talks about the different stages of health and how it might show up and usually if we get close and i read that with the type i watch people like including in this last one last week the the types of careers they typically orient themselves towards it was he was like what how in the world is you know again a lot of people get freaked out once you once you really get placed there's kind of a measure of being weirded out a little bit for most people that's a really that's a really good point about the difference between like free tests and more official tests where you have to pay for them because obviously money and research has gone into them um i think the very first test i took uh, the very first enneagram test i took was a free one and um i think i got eight the challenger and like i can i can see some of myself in that but it's definitely not my core type and then when i took the the ready test that's when I got five and that's when like I really was like okay yeah was your eight score pretty high when you took the ready still I don't remember honestly I might have to go back and look at my results again but I wouldn't I wouldn't be surprised if it was high that's usually a good sign um according to a good chunk of Enneagram teachers, that's the line of growth for the five. So going from that withdrawn, collecting information to actually applying information and kind of shaking things up, moving things within information, which is that type eight kind of lust for moving and shaking and challenging. So it could be a good sign if you showed up strong there. If you're looking for more information on all the resources that Steve mentions, check out our website, nearlynuminous.ca. There you'll find full transcripts of the episode and also a post including all of the books and other resources that Steve has mentioned. That's nearlynuminous.ca. So first off, we talked a lot about a Christian lens here. And if you, I'm sure you have listeners from all over the spiritual or non-spiritual spectrum. So I don't work exclusively with Christians. I actually work with a lot of deconstructing Christians from different veins, but it, you don't have to be anywhere in that ballpark to work with me. You can check my workout if anything that I'm talking about here resonates with you at mindfulenneagram.coach. And there's a lot of information there, ways to connect with me. And I do a free explorer session. So if you just want to talk for 15, 20 minutes and see if there's a fit there, we can just do that over zoom. It's free. It doesn't cost you anything, but 
couple minutes. So that's it. Thanks for listening to this week's episode of Nearly Numinous. For full transcripts of every episode, check out nearlynuminous.ca. There, you can also find links to subscribe to us on any of your favorite podcast platforms. Have a topic you'd like us to talk about, or would you like to be a guest on a future episode? Reach out to us at nearlynuminous at gmail.com. That's spelled N-E-A-R-L-Y-N-U-M-I-N-O-U-S at gmail.com. 